Welcome to Pathways to Hope and Healing, a podcast dedicated to sharing information, ideas, and resources about domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse. The topics discussed in this podcast, including survivor stories, supportive services, and domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, can be difficult, and we urge you to listen with care. Our hosts are not licensed counselors or mental health professionals, but licensed counselors are available at the Nampa Family Justice Center. If you or someone you care about have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, or elder abuse, please call the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700 or the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also find more resources in the description of this podcast. Welcome to Pathways to Hope and Healing. I'm Corey Michaels, along with my co-host and dear friend, the president of the Family Justice Center Foundation of Idaho, retired Detective Corporal Angela Weeks. Good to be here with you, Corey. I'm so excited about kicking these podcasts off. I I am as well. I've been thrilled ever since we first started talking about this and want to say thank you so much to the generous donor that made this possible as well. Yeah, Autoval, um, when they came in for their tour and realized that the Nampa Family Justice Center wasn't something they had very much information about, um, they, you know, they sponsored us being able to do these podcasts because they really wanted us to get the awareness out there about what the Nampa Family Justice Center is doing in our community and how our community can really be engaged with us. So this is going to be, you know, as we make our way through these podcasts, some of the content is going to be very, very serious, obviously yeah. horrific in, in at its core of what happened. But what we want you to always know, just like with the Family Justice Center and the Family Justice Center Foundation, is they, these stories are all about what happens after, the hope, the healing Absolutely. that occurs. And we always want to be able to end with that, yep. with that hope. Absolutely. So please always remember that. And since this is our our very first podcast, I think as we've learned with the Marvel Universe, you always start with an origin story. Yes. So go back (laughs) to the starting and then that leads us up to where we are today. Yeah. And so what better way to do that? Yeah. I'll introduce you to our guests that we have with us today. Um, So... Uh, This is somebody who is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to our movement here in Nampa, but not just here, like literally internationally. We are so privileged to have um, Casey Gwynn here with us. He is the president of Alliance for Hope. Um, Casey started the first family justice center in San Diego, which I had the privilege of touring not even probably six months after it opened. I had gone to a conference down there and I had the opportunity to see Casey Gwynn and to see the fire and the passion in him and to have him on our show today to talk about starting the NAMP, not the NAMPA one, we, I started that one, the, start of the National Family Justice Center Movement that has turned into international. So Casey, welcome. Thank you, friends. Nice to be with you. So Casey, um, I know a little bit about your story and the work that you have done tirelessly in creating the Family Justice Center model and really being the visionary about it, uh, of that program. Can you share that with our listeners today? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's uh, it's an amazing thing to look back over the last 35 years and kind of realize 
the pathway uh, that got us to where we are today in the Family Justice Center movement in the United States and around the world. Uh, I was a prosecutor in San Diego uh, in the 1980s. I was sick the day that everybody uh, picked their area of interest. I came back the following Monday, uh, and the only area that had not been picked was child abuse and domestic violence. That's how I became a child abuse domestic violence prosecutor. Yeah. I was totally incompetent. I knew nothing about anything. I didn't think it was had anything to do with me personally. I probably... I grew up with a, I grew up poor, but I grew up with a lot of privilege. I certainly didn't see this as an issue about my family or uh, my relatives, my dad. Um, it was those people, those women when I first began. And I started prosecuting these cases and I saw lots of terrified women and I saw them tell one story to the police and then they would change their story a day later. I saw them come forward and say, I need help. And then I saw them go right back to their abuser within a couple of days. I saw kids in the middle of all this and kind of co-conspirators as they were taught the police were bad and that they shouldn't say anything about what was happening in their home. And suddenly the kids would just kind of disappear uh, behind the background of all this violence and abuse. And for me, it was an advocate. It was a black leader in San Diego named Ashley Walker, uh, who in 1986 came to me after I lost a case prosecuting a judge for domestic violence at the beginning of my career. Ashley Walker came to me and she said, tell me everything you know about domestic violence right now. And uh, I'd never met her before. So I uh, thought for a minute and about 20 seconds after I finished, you know, my very eloquent remarks, <laughs> she was just staring at me. And then she said, you are an idiot. And I said, I am an idiot. I don't know anything. I just lost a case against a judge on television, televised trial in court, probably going to be fired tomorrow. And then she said, you need me in your life. And I wasn't so sure what with her just calling me an idiot. And then she said, and I need you in my life. And uh, that was a really profound moment. She was a sexual assault survivor. She was the founder of the first domestic violence shelter in San Diego at the YWCA. And uh, we intertwined our lives. And months later, I met a criminal defense lawyer in a courtroom named Gail Strack. Uh, and then I met a police sergeant named Dan O'Dell. And then I met a civil attorney named Lee Lawless. And then I met an amazing survivor named Deborah Feinstein. And then I met a doctor named George McLean. And then I met, and then I met. Yeah. And it was within two years of starting to really learn about domestic and sexual violence that Ashley Walker and I literally sat down together uh, in a Denny's restaurant in San Diego and drew out on a napkin what we thought it would look like if victims could come one place for everything. And that was the beginning of it all, um, the, So, which is true in so much of the country today. But in 1986 in San Diego, the cops did their own thing. The prosecutors did their own thing. The advocates did their own thing. The medical people did their own thing. The mental health people did their own thing. The child abuse people did their own thing. The sexual assault people did their own thing. And Ashley and I just sat down and drew it out on a napkin. And by then, Gail Strack had left the public defender's office and come uh, to work with me as a prosecutor. And we drew up a dream in 1989 and said, why can't survivors come one place? And at the time, there was no place in America or in the world where that was happening. 
And from 1989, we began the journey. We put seven agencies together in the prosecutor's office in 1990. By 1996, quite frankly, I realized we didn't have enough power. I decided to run for office as the local prosecutor in San Diego. I got elected and suddenly I had a $35 million budget and 350 staff. And I finally had some power to change things. And I said, let's figure this out. And it still took us another six years until uh, 2002 to open the San Diego Family Justice Center, 25 agencies under one roof, the first time it had ever happened on the planet. Uh, and then the goal was to make it work because it seems really simple. Yeah, you just get a bunch of people together in a building and everybody lives happily ever after. And it turns out that's not true. And it took Gail Strack's leadership as the director of the first Family Justice Center in America and a lot of political support to have these agencies together. And then we recruited local churches. We recruited the faith community to be chaplains and to be volunteers. And we recruited retired folks and all kinds of people. And we built a, a, a collaborative with 120 professionals and 120 volunteers on any given day in 40,000 square feet in downtown San Diego. And that became uh, the, the, the genesis of what was ultimately a 90% drop in domestic violence homicides in the city of San Diego within three years. Incredible. And we suddenly realized this, this model can work. This can be magic. And we didn't think it was relevant to Nampa, Idaho, uh, or any place else at the beginning. It was just our thing. We built relationships. When we offended each other, we apologized. Ashley and I decided we were sticking together no matter what. Gail and I decided sticking together no matter what. Had two goals, stick together, outlive our enemies. <laughs> and in that journey, uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, invited me to be uh, on her show in January of 2003. And I, I went to Chicago. I watching that. <laughs> and, uh, and Oprah profiled and endorsed the Family Justice Center movement. I was on the show for two days of the national broadcast. And afterwards, Oprah came into the green room and she said, I just changed the rest of your life. And I laughed. And I, you know, I thought I'm married. I'm the elected prosecutor in San Diego. I have three small children. I mean, Chicago in January is really special, but not a life changing experience. <laughs> and for me, it was like, you changed the rest of my life. And she looked at me and she said, you didn't you didn't hear what I just said. I just changed the rest of your life. And I kind of laughed again. And she kind of rolled her eyes at me and walked away. Uh, within two years, we'd had site visitors from 77 countries come to the San Diego Incredible. Family Justice Center, all of whom said, we saw you on Oprah. And that was the beginning of the journey. And months after Oprah, George W. Bush uh, decided to create a federal initiative, asked me to help lead that initiative when I left office as the elected city attorney of San Diego. Uh, and that's when I met Angela Weeks and uh, the Nampa Police Department in the city of Nampa. Uh, because you all applied to be one of those first 15 family justice centers in America based on the president's goal of how do we replicate the San Diego Family Justice Center. Yeah, it's so, you know, as I listen, all these memories come flooding back, Casey, because I'm listening to you talk about your experience with Ashley, and I think about when I first got hired at the Nampa Police Department, I was the only female officer, and there was this thought that I somehow, because I was female, knew everything about domestic violence and sexual assault. And I should handle all those calls. One of the most detrimental things they could have done because I didn't. I didn't know anything about them. And I think about some of the things I said to victims, some of the things I said to people who were experiencing this trauma. And our shelter 
um, actually, Ann O'Dell, that Casey was talking about, came to Nampa and did a class. Um, and I went, the shelter asked me to go to it. They, they're like, you know, we're just trying to get as many law enforcement. We'd really like you to attend. And um, I think they were politely saying, you don't know what you're doing. And you need to come <laughs> to this class. But they didn't, you know, they got me there. And I listened to Ann and I was like, wow. And this was long before I knew about the Family Justice Center, but she started sparking me along. And then I started teaching domestic violence in the police academy. I mean, it just kind of was this evolution of things I didn't know. I wasn't ill-intended, but what you don't know can be dangerous. Yes. Right? And so it was funny because the police academy is actually the ones who said, hey, um, San Diego is hosting a conference. Um, would you like to go down to San Diego? We'll pay for it. And I'm like, I've never been to San Diego. I'd love to go. And I had no idea. I literally had no idea. I listened to Casey. Um, I think he was, uh, you know, did the introduction and I he probably a keynote at that conference. And um, then they had tours of the Family Justice Center. And I came back to my hotel room and eight pages later, I had a strategic plan of who I was going to contact and what we were going to do. And I started working on it before, you know, Casey's doing this work that I don't know about with the president at that time. So I applied for a community development block grant. We started getting funding. And then Casey has done this work to um, get the national movement. But really what is so crucial is why was it important, Casey, that victims weren't going to all these locations? Why did you want to do that? Why did you think that was beneficial? I think there are a couple of things. One, Ashley just kept educating me about how challenging it was for survivors to find pathways forward in life. The best we had to offer was you can go to a shelter and hide from your abusive partner. It didn't get them anywhere. And of course, they can't live their lives in a shelter. Uh, we weren't, we, the criminal justice system wasn't engaged in those early years. Shelter was about all that we had in the battered women's movement. Uh, and so, you know, that was really, I think, the first aha moment was uh, we're not doing anything to hold primarily men uh, accountable for the choices they're making to harm women and children. There, nothing was happening to them. And we all know that in a rule of law society, if you don't hold people accountable for harming others, they continue to harm others. Yep. Uh, so that was one piece for me. The other piece for me was I had this aha moment in about 1990 or 91 when I realized this wasn't just about those women and those families. This was about me. I grew up in a home impacted by generations of child abuse and domestic violence. I don't believe my father ever hit my mother. My dad did a lot of great things in his life, but he abused all four of his kids. Uh, my dad was bipolar. My dad grew up in a very violent and abusive home. He was punched in the head every day uh, by my grandfather to be awakened in the morning, growing up in a very wealthy family in Seattle, Washington. And uh, we now know that, that bipolar disorder is not just a, a genetic thing. It's related to brain development. And brain development and what we now call the epigenetics of trauma getting passed from generation to generation, bipolar disorder is one of those things that connects to generational trauma. And so for, um, for me, it became very personal. In 1993, long before the Family Justice Center, even though we had seven agencies together and we knew we needed more service server victims in one place, um, Chris Hansen, the reporter uh, that did the To Catch a Predator series, yeah. came to San Diego. Tom Brokaw and Katie Couric did a special to profile our domestic violence work in San Diego. 
And Chris Hansen uh, was interviewing me on camera in my office. And he kept asking me your question, Angela, why are you so passionate about this? Why does this matter to you? Why are you so obsessed with this? And I finally just went like this. It's my family too. And uh, the interview ended, I was in tears. And uh, I had to call my dad and say, I just talked about our family on national television and it was not an easy conversation. My dad kind of said, that was not your place. And I said, you know what? I run a child abuse domestic violence unit and my kids aren't going to grow up in the kind of home I grew up in dad. So it is my place. And that was a hard journey. But after that, it became very personal. Then Gail told me her story of growing up in her family. And suddenly we were, this wasn't about those families. Yeah. This is about us. And once you begin to understand that it's not just those people, that lots of us are touched by violence and abuse or dysfunction in some way, and then you start to realize it plays itself out in the next generation and the next generation. And then this family gets victimized because of something that happened in somebody else's family. And then I started doing the research in the 1990s of who goes to prison and jail in America. And virtually everybody that ends up in jail and prison in America grows up in a home with some mix of child abuse and domestic violence and drugs and alcohol, virtually everybody. And so for me, then it was, how are we, if we're really going to change the world, are we really just going to wait at the bottom of the cliff for the next bad thing to happen to somebody else? Or are we going to start to figure out how to go work at the top of the cliff? And so for me, that's where the passion came from. And we were, I was raising little kids. I had to make a decision that I wasn't going to even use physical discipline on my kids. I had been whipped as a child to the point that I couldn't walk at times. And I had to make a decision that's not happening in my family. Turns out, uh, my kids all grew up healthy and functional and, uh, that physical discipline was not uh, a pathway to hope and healing in my family. My kids needed to know uh, that there were other logical consequences to mistakes they made and I could still love them and affirm them and I didn't have to hit them uh, to make my point. And so for us, it became very personal with my wife and me, how we were going to break that cycle in our own family. And then we had to say, so how are we going to help break it in other families? And that's been the journey. Yeah. And I love where that journey took you when it came with how were we going to do that with other families because that's something that the Nampa Family Justice Center um, has also joined you in Um, and I know that you are the founder of Camp Hope. I know um, your passion there um, and we have been blessed to be part of that program and continuing to grow with that. Um, Talk about Camp Hope. Yeah so we started the Family Justice Center. We opened October 10th 2002, 25 agencies 140 folks uh, with interns and professional staff, and then about 120 volunteers. Uh, And early on, I I was born and raised in Christian camping. My dad was the director of the largest Christian camp in the Western United States. It's called Mount Hermon Christian Conference Center. So I knew how special it was to be in nature. Uh, Mount Hermon was very special to me growing up in the redwood trees of Northern California. I would run away from home at times and go down by creeks and rivers and just hide and pray and Uh, It was my safe place. And so uh, I kept thinking as we opened the center, okay, so we're going to arrest primarily men who are violent and abusive. Uh, We're going to send women to shelters with their kids. We're going to give kids counseling. And then we're going to say, good luck. Yeah. Like, is that really all we're going to offer? Is that what hope looks like for kids? Your dad goes to jail and you get a therapist. So uh, I early on said, what if we started a camp? 
And people all said, uh, camp is a feel-good experience. It's a mountaintop experience. Camp doesn't change anybody's life. It's just that one week in the summer. And I kept thinking, yeah, but for these kids that have never been in nature, that have never enjoyed the incredible adventure of whitewater rafting or zip lining or rock climbing or anything else, can't we give them that? Can't they see that life can be different? And yes, maybe it'll turn out to just be a week, um, but that's okay. Uh, we'll give kids their childhood back for one week. Kids that have been robbed of their childhood, we'll at least give that back. So we started Camp Hope San Diego right when we started the San Diego Family Justice Center. We didn't know what we were doing. It's the grace of God that nothing terrible happened. Yeah. We took kids out to lakes and rivers, and we took kids in all kinds of crazy adventures. And as I look back now, because we've got all these protocols now, and Camp Hope is now in 25 states, and we've got procedures and policies and training and liability insurance and everything else. But in the early years, it was like, hey, I've got a boat. Do you want to learn how to wakeboard? Uh, that was kind of the beginning of the journey. And, I, and, and, and kids would say, I don't know how to swim. And I'd say, hey, we've got a life vest for you. You're going to be fine. I mean, I am thankful for the grace of God and all that. Yeah. But in those early years... I saw the magic. I saw the magic of that week in those kids' lives. And I will tell you that some of those kids from those earliest years in San Diego, uh, I still have a relationship with this to this very day. College graduates, uh, graduate school graduates, lawyers, one uh, just starting med school, um, started in uh, that those early years of Camp Hope. And then as Camp Hope evolved, we realized, and Angela, you were part of this journey, Rebecca Loveless and others, yeah. uh, right at the beginning in 2012, we realized what would this look like across California? What would this look like in other places? In the fall of 2012, we had Nampa, Idaho represented. We had uh, Oregon City, Oregon represented. We had California sites represented. We all came together at Kidder Creek Camp up in Northern California, and we dreamed of what a camp would look like across America. Thankfully, early on in that journey, we met Dr. Chan Hellman, the director of the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma. And Chan said, let's measure hope in the kids that you're going to send to camp. And in 2013, when we started to take camp to Idaho and across America, we measured hope. And in one week of camp, hope went like this. It went from low to high to back to baseline 30 days after camp. And I was so mad at Chan. And I said, your, your measurements are all flawed. And he said, you're not teaching kids how to set goals and pursue pathways in their life. All you're doing is giving them this notion of what life can be for one week. And in 2014, as you know, we changed our entire curriculum to yep. create year-round activities, to figure out how to create mentoring models. And we changed everything. And by 2015, hope went up after camp. And then 30 days, it went higher. And our highest hope measurements in all of our published research now are actually the kids' Christmas or holiday party in December because we're giving kids things to look forward to in their life. And suddenly when kids can see a pathway forward one step at a time, uh, they go down a different journey uh, than jail or prison or mental health facilities. So, yeah, Camp Hope has become really, I think, probably the most uh, significant thing in my life right now. Our goal is to be in all 50 states within 10 years. We hired a national director, a camp guy named John Hamilton, to run Camp Hope America because I, I was not a professional camping guy. And we are figuring it out. And people still say, oh, that camp thing, that's just a mountaintop experience. That's a feel-good thing. But now we have published research, and we can say, you know what? 
to send somebody to prison in Idaho, it's about 40,000, 50,000 bucks a year. In California, it's $90,000 a year to put somebody in prison. For camp and activities all year long, about 1,500 bucks. We can change the destiny of kids. Or you can wait and you can send them to a prison facility that costs more than Yale or Stanford or uh, any other university in America. Uh, or, or you can uh, do this. You can love them at seven, eight, nine, or 10 and change their destinies. Yeah. So for me, the Family Justice Centers and Camp Hope America go together yeah. uh, because we're not just focusing on adults. We're focusing on the kids. And we're not just saying to the kids, you know what, you need to get away from your parents. We're saying to the kids and the parents, you need together to make different choices in your life. And we're going to help you find the pathways so that you can make different choices. Uh, And we're going to do it in a way that doesn't bring you into something where all the professionals are up here and you're down here. We're going to bring you into a community or what we call a culture of hope, where we're going to welcome you as equals to all of us trying to figure out how to do life together um, and actually find greater well-being in our lives, whether I've been through a lot of abuse or you've been through a lot of abuse uh, or whether your experience is totally different than mine, we can do this together. So that, for me, uh, that's the story of the Nampa Family Justice Center because you're doing it. You are a model not just for Idaho but for the country. Um, But we're now seeing it in 43 states and 25 countries, yeah. this model can work. It's just a matter of priorities and resources and people being willing to commit to it. Yeah, you know, as I listen to you talk about this, I, I am, I'm mapping, you know, where I was at at each phase of kind of what you're talking about. I actually was hired as a police officer in 1994. And um, for those of you who don't know, that was when the Violence Against Women's Act was enacted. So that was like the beginning of my career when I knew nothing um, and so that um, started a lot of work nationally and funding for different programs. And as I move along my career and I meet Ann O'Dell and I meet Casey Gwynn and I meet Gail Strack and I start working on um, the Family Justice Center, I actually, um, so one of the things with President Bush's initiative is that the they had all these people from the Department of Justice and these evaluators come to the communities. And, you know, they wanted to make sure we really had partnerships and relationships and we really were doing the things we said we were doing. And I remember, and I wish I could think of her name. Um, she was, she came in and she is sitting down with our community in the building that is now the family justice center because we wanted them on site we were we already had the building given to us um by the city of nampa and um she's going through the requirements and there was a comment made about you know we weren't meeting one of the elements well i had i was like sleeping with that document on my pillow i knew i knew we had everything and um she gets up from the table, and I can see my my team looking at me like, Angela, can't you just be quiet sometimes? <laughs> and she went away, and she came back, and she said, you're right. You guys do have this in place. And she went back and recommended that I speak um, uh, at the 10th anniversary celebration of the Violence Against Women Act from that event. Um, and it was just crazy, the, some of the things that happened that put me on this trajectory of understanding things differently and you know what we have had modeled to us for our community from Casey and the the Alliance for Hope and Camp Hope America and what we have been able to do we actually celebrated being open 15 years and Casey came to our 15 year celebration Casey can you talk about the relationship with the Nampa Family Justice Center and 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 you and the national movement the international movement well, what, what I love, Angela, about your vision, your original vision in Nampa, 
and, and what Nampa has become is, you know, we, we have some really big family justice center frameworks. We're in every borough of New York City. Uh, we have centers in big cities like Milwaukee and Nashville and Fort Worth, Texas and other places. Uh, we needed to show that this could work in suburban communities, not huge cities necessarily, because the huge cities have often have more resources. The huge cities often have much bigger plans in everything they build, whether it's stadiums or anything else that they do. We needed a suburban community that could really be a model, and Nampa just was perfect for that. I mean, you had a police chief that got it. Uh, you you were in a really significant role with this investigations piece because the Family Justice Center depends on specialists. You can't just take a bunch of people who know nothing and put them in a building. We needed specialized detectives. We needed specialized prosecutors. We needed specialized advocates. We needed people who wanted to collaborate. And so when we first, uh, when I first saw that Nampa had been selected, um, I actually knew your peer review score uh, in the peer review process, and you scored really well because you had already started building these relationships uh, between agencies and between government agencies and non-government agencies. And so I, I knew Nampa was going to thrive. I didn't realize how much you were going to thrive. And Nampa became the first family justice center in America to create a child advocacy center uh, within your family justice center because you, you couldn't just keep sending everybody to Boise yeah. uh, for what you needed around child advocacy work. And so you, your model where you started a family justice center, you started with incredible city support in a city-funded building, and then you start with one floor, then you expanded the multiple floors, uh, then you added the child advocacy center piece, then you started Camp Hope. For us, you're like textbook success in the power of relationship building and collaboration. And it's not always simple. Right. You know, you have a police chief lead and the next one may not care as much or the next mayor may not care as much. Or you may have uh, a city that has other priorities or COVID comes along and everybody says, oh, we've got to go focus over here now or we've got to focus over here. But I feel like the Nampa Family Justice Center has stayed the course. And you have kept cultivating new relationships with donors and with supporters because so many family justice centers just uh, just sit on their laurels. Um, the San Diego Family Justice Center, the founding center in the movement, sadly, after Gail and I left and started the national movement, we were no longer involved in the day-to-day -day in San Diego. And San Diego kind of just sat on its laurels for a number of years. And unfortunately, you can't have a thriving collaborative uh, where you're not evolving. Yeah. Uh, it's like any other living organism, you grow or die. Uh, and the Nampa Family Justice Center has kept growing and kept evolving. And I just love that piece. And, you know, I can walk into a family justice center and be there for less than half an hour. And I can know whether it's healthy and whether it has a soul. Um, and when I walked into the Nampa Family Justice Center, I knew how healthy you were. And I felt the soul of the people that work there. I felt the soul of those who were getting services there. Um, and it's not always true. Uh, I have been in multiple centers in the last couple months uh, where they have really struggled to stay open during COVID. They've struggled to really provide ongoing caring services for survivors. Uh, quite frankly, I need just the other day I was in uh, uh, Golden, Colorado, and I visited a new family justice center that that used Nampa as a model. It's called the Porchlight Family Justice awesome. Center, suburban <laughs> center in Jefferson County, Colorado, run by Candace Coolidge. And as soon as I walked in, I thought she went to Nampa because the place feels like Nampa. It looks like Nampa. 
uh, and it has a soul. And so these suburban centers for me are so crucial in the Family Justice Center movement. And look at you, the work you're all doing, it's saving lives. And it's I'd love to see the model replicated all over the state of Idaho. We're not there yet. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I live in northern Idaho now. I live in northern Idaho. We got nothing. Um, So uh, I'm really advocating for uh, the Nampa Center to really start developing some statewide uh, kind of advocacy so that, and we need some statewide legislation in Idaho to incentivize family justice center development in the state of Idaho. I love the way but your mind thinks. What you Casey, all have done is amazing. The comments you're making are things I'm working on. I love that you are talking about that. Um, I actually was up doing because uh, it's hard for me to train anywhere without sharing what we do because I just absolutely believe in it. I have seen the impact of yeah. the Family Justice Center on families that we serve and on the children that we serve, and I've seen the other side of it when we don't have that. I mean, I've worked in that realm and um, I was up in Salmon, Idaho and I was doing a training and I was sharing about the Justice Center and a police officer there came up to me and he's like, you see that building across the street? Nobody owns it. And I'm like, I'm all in. Let me help you. Let's do this. And I got a call. Um, actually, a, a prosecutor from another jurisdiction was just in the Justice Center last week. Um, and he said, um, I was told by my mother-in-law because she used to work here at the Nampa Family Justice Center that I needed to come here and I needed to talk to you guys and I needed to learn what you were doing so we could do this in our community and I said I'm all in let me help you do this you don't have to start for I can tell you some of the things we did wrong and some of the things we learned Mm -hmm. and I can help with this and I've also reached out to one of our legislators because I know what California has done in funding some of the family justice centers and it's part of you know what they're doing in California I shared that with one of our legislators and I said and I have a relationship with her because I work on the Idaho sexual assault committee team with her and I said we need to be doing this here in Idaho we need to be thinking about this so I love that Casey's sharing that because it's exactly where my mind goes because this work is not done and you know one of the things that really hit me about what Casey was talking about with San Diego is when I was getting ready to retire from the police department um, you know, you have that fear because I've done I've done a lot of work within just my own agency on changing and, um, you know, our our processes and our procedures and our policies. And you want you're hoping you've instilled that in, you know, the people that you've brought along to do this work with you. And I remember a long time ago listening to Casey say, um, you know, the difference between a hallucination and a dream is the amount of people that see it. And I say that all the time because that's what I always want from the people that I do this work with. I want them to see the dream. I want them to see this, um, how much we can actually do when we come together and when we understand the value of starting in the homes first and changing the fabric of our communities from that level first. Um, And the people, when I retired and what I saw take over in my police department um, filled me. What I saw with trends, because now we've been through, we're on our third executive director at our Justice Center. And I was nervous during this, I was nervous during the first transition. I was nervous during the second transition. But the people who are invested in our communities in this work, oh my gosh, Casey, we're so fortunate in Nampa, Idaho. So fortunate. Yeah, well, I, I think the real, and this is this is the challenge, it's um, it's staying with it. Yeah. So it's easy to start something new and sexy, something new and flashy, um, some shiny thing, but the kind of long obedience in the same direction, this faithful commitment to sticking together in this, it's hard work. 
you know, agencies don't tend to naturally come together. Agencies naturally go apart. Na- agencies naturally silo. Cops have their own culture. You know that. Yep. Prosecutors have their own culture. Judges have their own culture. The faith community has its own culture. The schools have their own culture. The mental health community, the advocacy community. And I was at a, uh, we were running a conference many years ago at a hotel. And they would, before you start a conference at a hotel, they always have the general manager and his staff come in, you know, this to welcome you all. And we know we're going to be there for you for everything you need for your conference. And the general manager said, so tell me again what you do. And this was at a Weston hotel. He said, tell me again what you do. And I said, well, you know, we bring agencies together so that survivors of violence and abuse can come one place for everything they need. And they can choose who they want to talk to and who they want to interact with. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's a pretty simple idea. And I said, you, I mean, he, he was like, well, so what? And I, I said, you don't understand the concept. And he said, you just get everybody together. I said, no, it would be like in the hotel business. If the Weston Hotel got together with Motel 6 and the Hampton Inn and the Doubletree, and oh, the Doubletree, don't forget, they have cookies, and Hampton Inn serves breakfast. Oh, and Embassy Suites has a happy hour. If the, all the hotels had to get together and they each had 10 rooms, and your goal was to serve people in need of, of, of residential you know, hotel services. He said, all the hotels together in one place, he said, that would be chaos. And I said, that's what a family justice center is trying to do. And I said, because we're pulling people together that say, we do our job over here. This is who we serve. We do our job over here. This is who we serve. And those people are kind of our competitors because we have our money and we have our donors and they have their money and they have their donors. And he said, that concept would never work. And I said, but we are making it work. We are doing that in communities. And when we do it well, we all know this. It's magic for survivors. Uh, this week, I was texting with a young woman. She is a senior at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, she first came to camp when she was 12. She was in my raft, whitewater rafting on the Klamath River on the Oregon border. And uh, she turned down Harvard because they wouldn't give her a full ride. Oh, wow. uh, and University wow. of California, San Diego would. And she is now on her way to med school and her name's Ruby and she's an amazing young woman. And she was texting with me and she said, I just want you to know, Casey, my entire childhood was shaped by Camp Hope. She said, I can't think of anything else that happened in my childhood that gave me as much adventure and joy and fun as Camp Hope. Uh, And we could have uh, said, you know what, I'm sure she'll be fine. Children are resilient. You know, her dad's an alcoholic, abusive man, but, I'm sure she'll turn out okay. Uh, Or we could have decided to love her, which we did when she was 12. And she went to camp every year. And then we started saying, what are your goals? And, you know, she needed to know what college was. Nobody in her family had ever been to college. When she was 15, she reminded me, we took her to UCLA. We took her to San Diego State. They walked around the campus. And she said when she was 15, she said, I don't know if you remember this, Casey, but you all weren't sure that we could understand college. So you did a scavenger hunt for us at UCLA, and I had totally forgotten it. All we did on a college campus with these kids was a scavenger hunt. What was the point? We wanted them to know that college could be a place that was fun, and she never forgot it. And now she's going to med school. So, you know, we know that if donors invest their money in this, if we can build this collaborative in a community like Nampa, and then donors support it, 
what they're really doing is changing the lives of kids for generations to Absolutely. come. Because Ruby's not growing up in a violent and abusive relationship. She's not going to settle for less than somebody that respects her. And she's going to go on to invest her life in serving others. And we know that we can replicate that by the millions uh, if we can get the support from people in our communities to keep doing this work. Absolutely. Pretty fascinating, huh, Corey? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's wonderful. I mean, I knew the core of what what started everything right. and hearing your stories and that trip to San Diego for that initial conference. But now to hear it all from Casey and, you know, I see the passion in Angela every time we talk about the Family Justice Center. Anytime we were talking about whether it's the podcast, talking about the gala, being there at the Justice Center, and you just, you can't walk away from Angela and the rest of the staff and not see passion. You see it in each and every one of them. But I can also hear that same passion from Casey. And it's, it's wonderful. And it's why I'm so honored to be a, to be a part of this. Well, Casey, I am so grateful um, that you are leading this work, and I am so grateful that you helped us kick off our first podcast. Thank you for being part of this with us today. Honor to be with you both. Blessings on you. Blessings on all your staff, partner agencies, uh, and all the donors and supporters that are investing themselves to support the Nampa Family Justice Center. You're changing the world, uh, serving as a beacon of hope for a lot of folks. So blessings on you both. And you too, my friend. Thank you for your leadership. (laughs) Thank you, Casey. And all of the links to uh, the international movement, to to Hope uh, America, uh, Camp Hope America, to the Nampa Family Justice Center, everything that you could possibly want is all in the description here of the podcast. We've got a lot to come over each and every one of the the episodes. And we'll be talking on our next one with Angela and with the director now, uh, Jeannie, who has been uh, such a wonderful part of the Family Justice Center and now recently uh, just became the executive director. And, you know, so that'll be on the next one. So we'll be really focused on what's happening here in, uh, in Nampa. But then over the course of these, we'll be talking to survivors. We're going to be talking to so many different folks. And we hope you can join us for each and every episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pathways to Hope and Healing. Again, if you or someone you know have experienced domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, and elder abuse, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or the Nampa Family Justice Center at 208-475-5700. Search the Nampa Family Justice Center on Facebook and Instagram for more conversations. If you have suggestions for topics you would like us to cover, or get more information about anything you heard in today's episode, contact us through the email at fjc at cityofnampa.us.